0: This is Democracy World Podcast. My name is Liza Ositinskaya. I'm a Russian journalist and fellow at Berkeley School of Journalism and the founder of bilingual Russian media startup, The Bell. And this is a conversation with Francis Fukuyama, American political scientist and political economist, the author of a number of books, the Mosbacher director at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. And let me start from the obvious question that I couldn't avoid to ask you. Uh, how do you see uh, the current role of Russia on the international arena, and especially in the United States? Uh,
1: so Lisa, it's very nice to speak to you uh, on this uh, on this podcast. Um, uh, we go back a, l- a little ways, and I'm a great admirer of the Bell. So thank, thank you for you. publishing thank that. You. Um, Well, I think that Russia right now uh, is playing a very uh, destructive role in a number of ways. Um, It has tried to position itself as the champion of traditional values, but values that are not democratic, basically. So in um, Russia itself, uh, Vladimir Putin has used his position to dismantle uh, many of the Things that made Russia democratic at one point, you know, in the 1990s. So, uh, independent media uh, has been shut down. Uh, It's very difficult to have any kind of political opposition. He's running for president, but there's really not a serious, you know, uh, opposing candidate. Um, And in general, you know, the government does not like uh, any kind of opposition. And that's a image of strong leadership that he's trying to project uh, overseas. I think he clearly sees uh, both the European Union and the United States as big competitors. Uh, He doesn't want them to succeed as democracies and so he's done a great deal to um, you know not I mean he can't do anything to to truly undermine them but he can weaken them I think by increasing the distrust of citizens in Western countries for their own uh, democracies. He's tried to interfere in democratic processes in in those places. And then finally, I think in terms of foreign policy, I I think it's quite remarkable because I actually wrote my PhD dissertation on Soviet um, intervention in the Middle East, or at least threats to intervene, and throughout the entire period when the Soviet Union existed, they were actually extremely cautious in using, actually using power. And all of that has been thrown out the window with the Syrian intervention where the, you know, Russia really, you know, used its military power in a very direct way to change uh, the outcome. And so, uh, you know, it's it's not the most important country in the world, but it's a, it's a, it's one that's created a great deal of instability in the in the region, and I think that um, it's not been helpful to uh, kind of long-term stabilization of the region. So. What was, in your view, the true role
0: of Russia in the past U.S. presidential elections? Was it really significant? Could it change anything?
1: I don't. <coughs> I don't think that every anyone is ever going to be able to prove that it really had a big impact. The problem is actually that Donald Trump (coughs) won the election by a very small margin. Uh, We have this funny institution, the Electoral College, and the reason that he's president is not that he was more popular. He lost the popular election by 2.8 million votes. The reason he lost it was that there were three states that traditionally voted Democratic, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania and enough voters switched from Democrat to Republican that he picked up those electoral votes and that's what made him president and the margin was only 110,000 in those three states, meaning that if 55,000 Americans had voted the other way, Hillary Clinton would be president today. Now if the margin is actually only 55,000 people out of a country of 330 million, then almost anything could explain the. (laughs) you know, that election result. I mean, it could have been the weather that day or it could have been, you know, uh, the FBI uh, last-minute intervention. There are all sorts of things. So I don't think we will ever establish whether Russia actually had a decisive role in this, but we do know that they bought a lot of advertising on social media. They, you know, there are a lot of bots and trolls that were active and so they were certainly trying to influence things.
0: But do you believe in any sort of collusion uh, between well,
1: Russian side and. I, I, I don't. Uh, I think, you know, if I had to guess, I suspect that Donald Trump himself did not actively collude with the Russians. I think that that was probably not true of his son, Don Jr., who seems to have been quite happy to uh, work with, you know, the Russians. He's w- he was delighted when. You know, they said that he, they had dirt on Hillary Clinton. Um, His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, may have also been part of that process. So I certainly think that there were people very close to Donald Trump. Um, Did he know that they were doing this? Well, he probably did, but I don't think anyone is really going to ever prove whether that was the case or not.
0: Coming back to my initial question, uh, when and why do you think the West lost Russia?
1: Well, I'm not sure that the West lost Russia in the sense that as Russia recovered from the economic depression of the 1990s uh, there were probably forces that would have pushed almost any leadership into a more oppositional kind of uh, stance. Um, uh, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that so many people blame NATO expansion for having driven Russia uh, into this uh, very hostile uh, posture. What a lot of Eastern Europeans say is that even if they had not joined NATO, you know, the Russians would still have wanted to have a sphere of influence and to dominate them. That's one of those questions I think, again, we're never really going to be able to fully answer. You know I. I for one actually do believe that the United States made a lot of really big mistakes in the way it handled Russia Uh, and I think that equally serious um, you know with the NATO expansion was actually the bad economic advice we gave Russia in the early 1990s when Yeltsin was president. Uh, This was the height of what was called the Washington Consensus where Americans were advising transitioning uh, economies to privatize on a massive scale and to do it relatively rapidly you know to just do this uh, uh, transition to a, uh, a market economy as quickly as they could I think that was a really really big mistake uh, because a market economy depends on the um, building of institutions like property rights like a rule of law like a impersonal legal system, all of that takes time. The reason there are so many oligarchs in Russia is that uh, Russian state or Soviet state assets were privatized without a rule of law, meaning that the insiders were able to grab the assets they knew were valuable, they become billionaires, they remain, you know, in control of their businesses, and there's no so-called level playing field for, you know, other investors and, and, and so forth. And that, you know, uh, in that respect, I think the United States in particular was giving bad advice. You know, I think that you could have done things more gradually and carefully the way they were done in certain Eastern European countries. Certainly the Chinese had a, you know, much more cautious attitude towards this.
0: Do you have any thoughts about uh, the list of billionaires that was recently released by uh, Treasury as a... as a way to, uh, let's say, manage Russia, and uh, to motivate Russia to work in cooperation with the world?
1: Well, there's two separate questions. The actual list that was submitted was done in a terrible way because, uh, as I understand it, the White House, they, they had prepared a very careful list where they tried to identify the real oligarchs that were close to Putin but at the last minute, the White House wouldn't allow that to be uh, released. Why? Well, because I think Donald Trump does not want to do anything that's going to offend Putin. Uh, I I really think that that's that's the situation. On the other hand, Congress passed a law saying they had to submit a list, and so at the last minute, they substitute this Forbes list. It is not particularly well thought out. So from a The standpoint of the competence of the American government, I think this is an extremely embarrassing incident. I think in principle if they had submitted a good list, a carefully thought out list, it would have been very effective because I think a lot of these oligarchs have lots of assets in Europe, in the United States, and other places and if you want to send a message to them that's probably a good way of doing it.
0: As you maybe know I, I used to be a Forbes editor so I was very much surprised that our work was used in such a special way. Um, I wouldn't expect that that we worked on the list uh, <laughs> about five years ago, let's say. Um, but coming back to more general issue, do you believe Russia still can be a democracy in traditional Western meaning of this world, or
1: Russia is completely lost for for the West? Uh, I don't think that anything is inevitable. Uh, I think that Russia, like other countries, uh, you know, can go through a social evolution. uh, If, for example, you look at the attitudes of a lot of Russian young people, you know, they're different from that of the people that are 20, 30 years older than them. Uh, And um, I think they are better educated, they've had a chance to travel, they see the world on the outside, you know, more than earlier generations of Russians and so I think that that would probably change their attitudes in many ways. Um, uh, So no, I don't think that it's inevitable that Russia uh, remain a a kind of closed dictatorship. Um, How to
0: overcome the confrontation between Russia and the West? Uh, Do you see, uh, in principle, do you see any positive scenario?
1: Uh, I think that, well, first of all, you know, the United States needs to develop a good relationship with the Russian people, and not necessarily with the regime. I think that it's going to remain very difficult to work with Putin, uh, but you know, we can certainly try to have contacts of various sorts—economic, cultural—you know—with with with Russians, um, and I think that. We just have to be patient in terms of the government-to-government relationship because that will depend on decisions that are made on both sides. Right now, I think the central issue between us is Ukraine and, you know, the invasion of Crimea and then this war that's ongoing in eastern Ukraine. As long as that is happening, and that's really, that's, that's a Russian decision, you know, to launch that war, as long as that's happening, I think it's pretty hard to, you know, have a better bilateral relation between Russia and the United States. Uh, So my hope is at some point, you know, Russia itself will decide that this war is is futile and they don't need to, you know, continue to pursue it and then, you know, at that point I think there could be uh, a longer term, you know, reconciliation.
0: That's of course possible but also i believe it may be a, a movement from from both sides mm-hmm. uh and i wonder what uh, western democracies should do or shouldn't do in order to uh to pursue russia uh to come back to to uh, normal stable relationships mm-hmm. well now they're very stable but that like very in very negative way yeah.
1: You know, part of the problem in the way that the United States was treating Russia was that after the 1990s, we continued to think of it as a weak country. We didn't take account of, I think, the wounded pride and the, you know, a lot of the um, resentments that had built up on the part of Russians. And I think part of that could have been solved by, you know, more respectful kinds of conversations where we, really did talk about our interests. So let me just give you an example of that. Um, back in the Bush era, in the in the 2000s, you know, the way we treated Russia was we simply came with a list of demands and said you must do this, 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 and this, you know, human rights and, and um, you have to accept missile defense and you have to accept Kosovo as an independent country and, you know, so forth. And if you don't accept all the items on our list, we're we, we can't deal with you, uh, rather than, I think, dealing with Russia like a great power where you say, okay, we recognize you've got your own interests. Uh, in particular, I think missile defense and Kosovo were issues where we didn't have a strong interest really in pursuing this and it would have been perfectly possible, I think, to go to Russia and say, okay, we'll take a different attitude on, you know, on both of those but we want something in return and that's the way great powers t- deal with each other they don't necessarily agree but you know you can actually have a have a negotiation so i think you know that that would have been better that's in the past now i don't think you can resurrect that kind of a conversation but in principle i think that's the relationship we ought to have where we've got differing interests we acknowledge that but you talk frankly now the problem is that on our side I don't think there's anyone that can have that conversation because I absolutely do not trust Donald Trump. You know he, he keeps saying wouldn't it be nice to have a good relationship with Russia and with Putin and I'm really good at you know negotiating so I ought to do it and in, you know th- this is where I think his personal his personality, his character and his past history absolutely prevent him from being the right person to have that conversation uh, because to this day, there's something very strange about him and Russia that, you know, it it feeds these theories that the Russians really do have some kind of dirt on him because in his own self-interest, you would think after all this revelation of the Russian meddling in the election, he'd say that was really bad. We condemn Russia for it, you know, let's move on. But yet, he's not able to do that because I think his vanity, he doesn't want to admit that he got any help, you know, in the election. And so his vanity prevents him from saying something that actually would be in his own self-interest in terms of, you know, American politics. Uh, But it certainly makes him completely incapable of being a real, you know, negotiator with Russia because he's always going to feel that um, he owes them something.
0: he's obliged in some way well I'm a foreigner I'm not in a position to criticize your president Mm -hmm. but um, I tend to agree uh, with you uh, about respect and the point of respect Mm -hmm. that uh, Vladimir Putin definitely is seeking Mm -hmm. I mean for him respect and the way how United Mm -hmm. States treat him is very important and Mm -hmm. he stressed that um, Many times, and I think when we discuss what is in the in the Putin's mind, you know, it's very popular uh, question and better in the United States now. I think this is definitely uh, one of the important points on on the uh, Russian-US agenda.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that Americans are uh, very used to <coughs> lecturing other countries about, you know, their behavior and so forth, and. And because Russia was weak during the 1990s we got into the habit of lecturing Russia a lot and I think you know that became inappropriate I mean it was never really appropriate ever but especially once rec- Russia began recovering in the 2000s that was completely the wrong you know position to take so I think you know the respect issues is, is there.
0: Let's turn a little bit from Russia to the uh, issue that maybe is more important for most of US listeners. So what is the future of the Western democracy itself giving uh, a lot of nationalism and populism trends in the world and, and particularly in your country? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think we've been seeing a populist upsurge in many countries in Hungary and Poland in Turkey, Russia, so forth and now in Britain and the United States um, uh, where you've had um, popular movements to basically reverse globalization to cut these countries off to stress you know a more n- a narrow form of national identity uh, and I think that these are driven by a number of forces uh, partly partly it's economic because not everybody benefited from globalization uh, partly it's political that People in many countries feel they want a strong leader that's decisive and going to make decisions and really get things done. Uh, and then finally, uh, there's the issue that I am currently writing about, uh, uh, which is identity and which is a cultural issue where, and again, this word respect is, is, you know, is critical that um, what drives people into politics very often is lack of respect. If people think that they are being ignored or uh, condemned or looked down upon, uh, they get very angry because I think all human beings have this basic desire for at least equal dignity. And uh, many people who have not profited from globalization both in Europe and the United States feel that the elites who have benefited from it are looking down on them, are designing policies that are not Uh, helping them and actively hurting them. Immigration then becomes a really big issue because they feel that this is being imposed on them and it's taking jobs away but it's not, uh, it it benefits the elites but it doesn't benefit them. Whether that's true or not is a separate story but I think that's, you know, that's the feeling. Uh, And also just in the way that people talk, I think that many ordinary Americans who do not live in New York or San Francisco or Chicago uh, feel that people that do live in those cities don't understand their problems, don't appreciate their way of life. And the uh, same thing is true in, in, you know, in Britain, outside of London. You go to smaller towns or rural areas, people feel disconnected from what goes on in, you know, in, in the capital. And so that's where a lot of the populist resentment is coming from.
0: Do you think it's a permanent? Uh, uh, well, it's... it's just Temporary. It's,
1: it's, it, it reflects a deeper social condition that, that has been produced by globalization. So in that sense, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And in fact, you can imagine it getting much worse. Uh, you know, we're living here in Silicon Valley with self-driving cars. You imagine that in another 10 or 15 years, they become safe, effective. Everybody starts using them. You've got three million truck drivers and maybe the same number of taxi and limousine drivers, uh, all of whom stand to lose their jobs uh, because of this advance of automation, along with their families and the people that depend on them, that you know service their cars and feed them lunches and dinners and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, so this is a continuing problem and it's not, um, I don't think it's going to let up anytime soon. And as a result, I think this is actually going to be a, a crisis that may actually deepen rather than just get better over time.
0: You sound pretty depressive. <laughs> uh, so I have two follow-ups two follow on that. First, do you think that populism as a way of uh, political life could answer
1: these challenges? That's
0: the first one. And uh, the second one, how populism will shape the world?
1: Well, I don't think that populism really has an answer, certainly not to the underlying economic problems. Uh, You know, the answer that many of them give is protectionism, you know, just cut ourselves off, withdraw from the European Union, put up tariff barriers against China or Mexico or, you know, other foreign competition. And, you know, that's, a, that's always been a formula for economic collapse. That's what happened in the 1930s um, and I think today we're even more tightly integrated economically. So if we start down that road, uh, you know, we're, we're going to hurt the very people that are unhappy, you know, right now. Uh, so that, in that respect, they don't have an answer. What's troubling from a political standpoint is that populists use popular political support to undermine uh, basic institutions of democracy, like the rule of law, like the independent media. So, you know, Orban, um, uh, Kaczynski, you know, Erdogan, Putin, (laughs) Trump, I would put in this category too, all of them uh, attack the mainstream media as being, you know, Trump actually said that mainstream media are enemies of the American people. So um, I think that in terms of maintaining the health of basic democratic institutions, this is, um, this is a very bad thing. And uh, we will have to see how much lasting damage is done to our democratic institutions because of this kind of activity. Uh,
0: what exactly uh, and why uh, populism is dangerous, in your view?
1: Well, there there's a lot of different reasons so economically it could lead to economic nationalism and therefore a global recession and everybody getting poorer Um, again that happened in the 1930s you know there was this famous uh, uh, Smoot-Hawley tariff that was imposed by the United States other countries um, retaliated and as a result the depression, the Great Depression got worse Uh, so that's one possibility but I think, you know, the political damage is really in terms of individual liberties because populists don't like opponents. You know, for example, in Turkey, uh, what's happened there over the past year and a half is, is, you know, it's terrible. I mean, tens of thousands of journalists, civil servants, military officers, teachers, academics have been arrested. They've lost their livelihoods. Some of them have been forced to flee the country. So Turkey is really undermining its own elite, you know, the people that really it depends on to make the country run are are being forced out. Um, similarly, you know, I mean, I, why is a intelligent, you know, investigative journalist like you not living in Russia today? Uh, you know, it's because that political environment is, uh, doesn't like critical journalism, and you know, Russia needs people like you, but you know, you you're not able to live there and you know, exercise your own profession.
0: Well, Russia, uh, I have to admit that Russia doesn't have uh, free media as an institution that um, supports the, the system of decision-making and political competition. So uh, it's, of course, sad news for me, but also I look at this in a more systematic way understand that media are not a, a fourth power mm-hmm. in Russia as it was uh, as it is in the United States uh, but I want to uh, I want to ask you a tricky question how would you explain that uh, American economy is uh, significantly growing mm-hmm. under uh, uh, under leadership that you you call populism
1: well so actually uh, Donald Trump has not carried out a lot of the things he's threatened to do. So he's not done these big tariffs against Mexico and China and so forth. And actually he has behaved more like a traditional conservative Republican in terms of tax cutting and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so in that respect he hasn't been as bad as, you know, as people feared. Although we'll have to see because this is only the end of year one of his uh, administration. I mean, some of the thing, you know, some of the things honestly probably did help that he did uh, cutting regulations. You know, we were overregulated. Um, I think in the short run, the tax cut that was just passed by Congress uh, is a big stimulus to the economy. I think in the long run, it's also very uh, dang- well. It's dangerous because it's like a sugar high. You know, you mm-hmm. stimulate a lot of growth, but then it creates deficits and long-term problems and then when the final slowdown comes it's it's you know much more catastrophic than it would be uh, otherwise but until that happens everything looks good just like they looked good before the great crash and you know in 2008 uh, so i think it's it's a combination of these different i don't things. like this
0: parallel <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, in your view, what is common and different in, uh, in Putin and Trump policies and their populism, if you think they're populist?
1: Well, both of them are nationalists, right? So they uh, don't like this international liberal cosmopolitan order where people are able to move freely and, you know, uh, mix. I mean, this is more an issue that Putin has emphasized more than Trump, but, uh, you know, They're they're both uh, at least pretending to defend traditional values, you know, the family and they don't like, uh, you know, gay rights and, you know, the kinds of liberal um, uh, practices that have taken root in, you know, in Europe and in in the United States. Um, They both uh, think that a strong military is important, you know, they are more interested in projecting hard power than in you know, soft power in many ways. So in those respects, I think they have something in common. Uh, what differences do they have? Um, well, I think actually Putin is a lot smarter than Trump is. I mean, Trump has done a lot of things. <laughs> it's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, no, I, I must say in, in Putin's favor that he, he really does not have that strong a hand in terms of his underlying Assets, you know, the economy is weak, it's very too dependent on oil, and uh, military is one-tenth the size of, you know, the American military. And yet he's used the assets that he has uh, very effectively. Uh, Trump, I think, has kind of done the opposite that, you know, we're less effective than we we could be. Uh, And certainly in terms of his own domestic political standing, he seems to want to do everything he can to reduce the size of his support base. He he could have reached out to Democrats and to independents and built a much broader coalition of people, but for some reason he doesn't want to do that. And so I think that's weakened him as a as a president. You know, ultimately, internationally, uh, a leader is only as strong as the kind of support that he or she receives back at home Putin, you know, I think has still got a fairly broad base of support. Trump has an extremely narrow one. And so everything he does internationally will be criticized very severely. Uh, So that's another, I think, really important difference.
0: Yeah, also I think they have very different attitude to migration issues. Mm -hmm. They even published a column that said that Putin would never build a wall or suggested a wall with Mexico because... He attracts compared to opposition mm-hmm. leader Alexei Navalny, who says that we need to start a visa regime with uh, Middle East and Central Asia. Putin uh, kind of um, <coughs> behaves in favor in a way that. Oh, that's right. So that's one thing I would immigrants. not blame. Yeah.
1: I would not blame Putin for. He's been fairly good about. You know about. Um, you know. Russia is a multicultural country where there's a reasonable amount of tolerance. He has exploited terrorism as an issue but not in the way that certain other demagogic populist leaders. I
0: think this is his ideological legacy from Soviet Union Mm -hmm. because uh, although it was not true and we know that uh, a lot of uh, Jewish people had issues with uh, you know applying universities on words soviet union claimed to be a multicultural uh, state so but uh turning again to popul- to issue of populism uh, so it's interesting phenomenon for me that populists uh, appear in any sort of uh, state you know either democratic authoritarian or tyrant. Uh, why and how would you explain that and do you in any way you believe in a good, advanced, educated populist who would, you well, know, save the country from...
1: No, populism is not necessarily bad. I mean, it just means that people in a democracy are upset about something. And I think it really depends on how leaders use that anger and channel it. So during the 1930s, you had the Great Depression, you know, Uh, Unemployment in the United States was like 20% higher than 20%, you know, a lot of people were suffering. Uh, There was a lot of anger, uh, justifiable anger. And Franklin Roosevelt used that anger and channeled it, you know, towards policies that created the modern American welfare state, which I think was a very important, you know, step forward. Uh, But other populists, you know, used that same kind of passion for destructive purposes. So for example, I mean Milosevic in Serbia is a good case of this, you know, uh, you had a lot of populist nationalism in Serbia uh, and he saw that he could make a political career by exploiting it and you know making it more extreme and Serbia and the rest of the Balkans paid a terrible, you know, terrible price for it. So I think leadership really matters a lot and the choices that individual leaders make and Sometimes you get a, you know, Nelson Mandela and other times you get a, you know, a Milosevic. And Do you call
0: Nelson Mandela a populist? Uh, did you call
1: Nelson Mandela a populist? No, but he, he, was, he was supported by a lot of popular, you know, he had a tremendous amount of popular support. But he, you know, I think he turned that to very good uses.
0: Do you see any reason for optimism? today in a, in a
1: world policy. oh sure no I think there are reasons I think that um, in the United States American institutions thus far have held up pretty well so they're not uh, they're not you know being destroyed really by by the current administration We'll have to see because the more time goes on I think the more vulnerable they become but so far uh, they seem to be relatively um, relatively good you know in Europe, voters have rejected the National Front in France and Freedom Party in the Netherlands. Um, So all of those I think are positive developments. I think there are other things that could be done uh, uh, you know to kind of get at the underlying, some of the underlying causes of this discontent but, uh, but for the time being I think it's not a completely negative picture. The other thing that's happening in the world is that there's for the first time in some years coordinated economic growth everywhere. And whatever the discontents of populists, it's much worse if there's no growth. Uh, they can exploit unhappiness much more if people aren't getting jobs. But if they are getting jobs, I think that relieves a little bit of the pressure. Thank you very much okay, for thank this conversation. You. Thank, thank you, you
0: very you. much. Thank you. That was a Democracy World podcast with Francis Fukuyama and Lisa Asetinskaya conducted this interview for you.